Hello everybody, apologies for the lateness of the Paddock Pass podcast this week, but if you've been following our content on Patreon, then you'll know that we've been busy every day from the first Urta test of the season. Dave has already been flashing his hat at the MotoGP paddock in the confines of a surprisingly dry Sepang International Circuit. We'll try not to trip over ourselves in terms of content and views from the Patreon posts, but the aim of the show today is to give you our five takes, hot or hysterical, that we glean from the three-day session and the first flurry of action this year. I'm Adam Wheeler, and before I get on to my esteemed colleagues, a swift reminder about Renthal and why head into Renthal.com for any and all street bike accessories, chains, grips, bars, and loads more will be the best move you can make this winter. You can't beat quality. David Emmett, you're still in Malaysia. Uh, rumors of checks rumors of checks of depravity have come back negative, so hopefully you're, you'll be at the <laughs> airport and on your way home soon. Um, did all that new tech in the pit lane get your juices flowing? Uh, um, it was. It was very. It was very interesting. But I. I mean, I shall be um, really uh, pathetic and tell you the thing that surprised and shocked me most was uh, when um, Harry Lloyd pointed out to me that um, there are different front paddock stands for air uh, bikes with front uh, fork wings and bikes without front fork wings so that's one of the ways you can tell because they have to actually like bend the things and make them make them sort of wider and stand out so that they don't interfere with the with the fork wings so i was like um oh my goodness that's very very exciting so that was um uh, that that it, and that it also made me last <laughs> it wasn't the highlight actually the highlight of my test the highlight of my test was uh, seeing michele piero's funky uh, sort of Comstar wheels with all the secret tech hidden inside them that you can't find out about. Well, hang on, hang on, hang on. Don't shoot your load just yet. We're going to get onto that in a minute. But, um, (laughs) you know, it's good to know that there's different kind of uh, front um, bike stands. Front paddock stands. Oh, yeah. That's the kind of useless information we like to give out on the Paddock Pass podcast. (laughs) Uh, Neil, I know your juices are always on tap, um, but where can our listeners read some of your fine, superb, um, often late pros on the Sepang Test? It's a very timely pause, I would like to remind our users this week. Um, but yeah, motorcycle news, cycle news, uh, Australian motorcycle news are the, like, I think, the people I've been writing for this week. So yeah, if you're in the UK, America, Australia, like I think most of our listeners are, then um, yeah, check out one of those publications. Let's get right into the test then. Uh, Peko Bagnaya, top of the charts. Uh, four riders into the unheard of 56 for lap times and the top 10 all under the lap record. Dave, uh, I mean, you kind of hinted a little bit there. What was uh, the most impressive bit of hardware that got you all sweaty in Malaysia? Well, they, the most impressive hardware is always on the test riders' bikes because what the um, MotoGP riders, the factory riders, what they're testing is stuff that they might use in uh, 2024, um, but just like Lorenzo Savadori, the Valencia test tr- uh, trying Aprilia's carbon uh, carbon chassis, um, uh, I saw one of Michele Piro's bikes with all sorts of it had these funky wheels, which means there's all sorts of sensors all over the back of it, and of course also on the back of the of the um, uh, on the back of the Aprilia, we saw an aero rake, which is a little thing full of pitot tubes, which measure. Um, air pressure and Aprilia using it to basically validate their models. They first of all they work out what they think the the airflow over the bike and rider will look like, and then uh, they send a rider out with one of these things on the on the tail and to measure all of the air pressures and see if it sort of actually matches what they do. The people got very very excited about that. Um, they've been using them in F1 for literally decades so i was quite surprised that people were absolutely fainting they were taking to their fainting couches over it um but yeah like i say like michaela piero's bike when he went out there was all sorts of uh, funky lasers and god knows what else on there um which means you know that they are trying to do something weird uh ktm also had one but it looked more like a sort of rack for underwear or drying underwear i guess you could say um who who do you reckon made the biggest steps in terms of aero dave i mean you saw ktm have this quite impressive groove on the side of the fairing uh ducati coming up with some interesting stuff as well but uh, you know everybody trying that kind of area of the bike for improvements i mean it it depends what you mean i think Personally, I think that uh, Honda probably made the biggest step forward 
but they were coming from a much lower base. Uh, uh, Ducati uh, managed to well last year. Ducati had two fairings. One of them was uh, the, one, the, the if you like the ground effects fairing, which is the one with the side sticking out, which you also saw on the Aprilia, uh, and then uh, the fairing for turning, which had the, the you know the side pods at the top and these sort of little downwash ducts down the bottom, uh, the bottom front of the fairing. Uh, and Ducati came up with a fair which combined the best part, the best of uh, best of those, um, which all the Ducati riders ended up liking by the final day. Um, uh, it did make the bike a little bit more difficult to turn, but um, it was much more stable in braking, made it much more stable, and made it you know just improved it. So I think Ducati did a fantastic job. Aprilia, I think, have a whole bunch of stuff that they were testing, and I think they still have a way to go. Um, and yeah, what KTM were doing was very, very interesting. I haven't had a proper a chance to proper sort of like look and figure out what they were doing. Um, but yeah, it was also interesting seeing, for example, uh, Aprilia debuted these these fork wings, but on their new bike, these fork wings aren't there anymore because they're getting the same effect from somewhere else. So it, it, it's it's an ever changing sort of picture of what's going on. Well, as we said at the top of the show, we don't want to go ram sort of shackle into the test. So we've kind of come up with five takes, um, hot or hysterical. We have to sort of uh, give them a verdict once we've discussed them. The first one I want to throw at you, Neil, perhaps you can go first on your opinion. Number one, Mark Marquez might take longer to get the hang of this dominant Ducati thing than people might think. Thoughts? Um, yeah, if you mean like longer as in a couple of races, then then yes. But um, I, I think he's pretty much on, on schedule, judging by his performance at the test. Um, the first day, there was maybe a little bit of worry. Um, I think he was having some technical issues, which were debilitating him and his machine for, for the best part of the, the morning and early afternoon. I think he had four exits, four technical issues that he had to come back to the box with um, and really couldn't get himself sorted. We heard a couple of our photographer colleagues talking about watching Mark trackside at turn 15, um, turn 9, two of the heaviest breaking points on the track, and him looking far from comfortable, far from his usual aggressive self breaking into the corner. But when you look at um, when you looked at his rhythm on day two, it was actually quite strong. It was not that far away from his brother, who's obviously had a, a full year on that bike already, and won the sprint race at uh, Sepang last year. Um, and then in the final day, he did manage to find some of that uh, some of that kind of one-lap speed. So, you know, sixth place overall. Um, okay, he's half a second off Banyaya's fastest time. But I would say that's a really solid opening, um, considering he's having to unlearn around 11 years' worth of experience on the Honda uh, and approach a bike completely differently. He spoke at length quite a few times during the week about how you ride the Honda all on the front, whereas the Ducati needs to kind of be ridden on the rear. So you're talking about night and day differences here. It Even for a rider of his standards, I never thought it was going to just click like that and he would be fastest at Sepang on, on day three. Um, but I think all things considered, he's he's probably where he wants to be. And his, I didn't see his face yesterday, but I listened to uh, for the final day of the of the test, but I, I saw, I listened to his debrief and he certainly sounded very, very happy and very content. So um, yeah, maybe he's not going to win in Qatar, but um, Austin is round three guys. So I wouldn't put a past him winning there. Dave, this is one of the fantastic things about motorcycle racing, because you have arguably one of the best riders to have ever swung his leg over a Grand Prix motorcycle. You have the motorcycle that's won the world championship but still there's such a fundamental characteristic and difference in the way to ride the thing that, you know, these two entities need to gel, they need time. And, uh, you know, people kind of speculating when Marcus had signed the, uh, the contract to ride for Ducati and Grassini that the championship was already done. I mean, the, it's a little bit of common sense, but it, it's going to take time. Uh, yeah, it's going to get, it's going to take a little bit of uh, time. And especially like you say, you've got Mark Marquez, probably the most talented rider ever uh, and uh, the Ducati probably the the fastest MotoGP bike ever um, I think Peter Baum on Twitter I just saw a tweet of his and he, and he was sort of like saying like Mark is getting off a bike off a motorbike you know it, it was a MotoGP bike or, or rather it was a motorcycle it was a racing motorcycle it's getting on to the Ducati which is the modern Mo uh, uh, MotoGP bike. It's much more. It's a completely different uh, animal. 
Um, Marcus used to riding everything with the front. That was the way, you know, you would... Bikes used to be short and high, and you would use the pitch of the bike to be able to turn, to be able to brake, to be to, to be able to accelerate. You'd use your body to to manage the bike. Now bikes are long and low. Um, you're using aerodynamics. You're exploiting the drive. You're exploiting acceleration. You're using um, the aerodynamics to help you stop the bike. You're using the engine brake. You're using the ride height device. It's a completely different uh, different ball game, and and the Ducati is right near the peak of that. Um, so yes, it, it is going to take uh, more. Mark was looking much happier. Also, he said sort of you know by by the end of it, like um, in braking. If you look at braking, I'm actually uh, better than so the the uh, a lot of the rest of the Ducati riders. So uh, he has already uh, adapted. Uh, but I think if you're talking about hot or hysterical, they were basically two. Well, fans had other you know fans and also. You know, experts and uh, ex riders and, and and people like us. There were there were two takes on Mark. Uh, a, um, he, he's going to win every race and uh, be crowned champion by about round six. And the other take was he's going to fail terribly. It'll be the end of his career and he'll retire in tears. Um, of course, neither of those is um, is really going to work. Uh, the the reality is it's going to take him. Uh, probably half a season. We were talking, Neil and I were at the Grassini launch and we were talking to Frankie Carcetti who was saying, look, it's going to take him a few uh, a few races to get up to speed because he has to figure it out. Mark himself was saying, uh, the first, uh, you know, Sepang, you're here, you've got three days. Um, and it took him three days to really figure it out and he started to get up to speed. We'll go to Qatar, he'll have two days testing there to figure it out and then he'll race at Qatar. It'll probably be very competitive at Qatar. But then he'll go to Portimao, and he's got no—he's never been around. Well, I mean, he's been around on a on a Panigale, but that's completely different. He's never been around uh, Portimao on a Moto G, on a on a, a Ducati Moto GP bike, and there's just not enough time to actually get up to speed. So until he really truly wraps his head around the bike, which is going to take five, six, seven, eight races, um, then there's going to be races where he'll be good, and there'll be races where he struggles. Um, and it's going to be much more about the tracks, uh, the, the tracks where he's good and the tracks where he's bad. So, yeah, it's going to take a while. I think the second half of the season, things are going to look very different. I think also you have to factor in that he's coming up against two guys now that are absolutely in their prime. And um, judging by the times at this test, um, obviously the test was ridiculously fast. Those uh, four fifty-six lap times out that you mentioned, um, you know, uh, it was only a couple of years ago that the idea of doing a fifty-six at Sepang seemed like a, a kind of ridiculous uh, hypothetical thought. But um, you know, now it was kind of commonplace if you were on the, the latest Ducati. Um, and, you know, this year, Mark is going to be coming up against uh, Banyaya, who's a double world champion. Martin, who is obviously one of the fastest guys now in the world. And maybe Enea Bastianini, who's kind of rejuvenated. Um, you know, the jury's still out until we go to another couple of tracks, I think, just to, to measure Bastianini's progress. But certainly all the indications coming out of Sepang were very good. Um, Davide Tardozzi was saying to, I think, Simon Crefar on one of the MotoGP Live interviews, one day that uh, the, the 22 Bastianini is back rather than the 23 one. Um, and yeah, I think it's, it's not like Mark is coming up against a, a kind of crap field where there's no one really staking their claim to be champion. You know, he, this is a, a very competitive field with the GP24s now, even uh, probably a, a, a decent step ahead of the GP23. So that's another thing that I think might influence the fact that he might not just show up and clean the floor with everyone in the first couple of races. Uh, one quick thing about the 56s, it was notable there were four bikes which which uh, did a 156. Three of them were GP24s and one of them was Alex Marcus on last year's bike. So the track was really, really fast as well. It's not just that the, the, the Ducatis have made, or all of the bikes have made a big step forward. It's also, the, you know, the track and the riders and everyone is just a little bit more used to it. It's not been so long since they uh, since they raced there. Well, two of those riders as well won the two races at Sepang last year. I mean, Alex Marquez went in the sprint and then Aya Bastianini, that was his one major highlight of 2023. So, uh, you know, those riders obviously got a good feeling with the track. And then Dave, like we said on the Patreon note show earlier in the week, you know, certain areas of um, Sepang being and resurface contributing to the the excellent grip level so the test um as always it's so tempting to read stuff into it 
but then you know there are outlying factors i mean one of the the things as well as you pointed out neil is you know you do have two riders on the ducati that are perfectly in sync now with the the requirements of the motorcycle that being peko bagnaya and also jorge martin and it's kind of unusual to go into the first test of a year with those two riders at the top of the timesheets and almost um, renewing battle lines from the previous season. That's something we're not quite used to, I'd say, in, in sort of preseason tests. But that leads us on to our second take. Um, Peko Bagnaia is going to be even better this year than he has been. A third title, I don't think, can be ruled out on the basis of these three days um, in Malaysia. But then again, so is Jorge Martin. So is that a hot take or is it hysterical? Yeah, no, I, I wouldn't really argue with with that point at all. I had to be honest. Uh, I mean, the the guys ended up one and two um, on the timing screens um, at the end of the test. They were the fastest guys in the world last year, um, and there were two guys that Mark has consistently referenced when he's talking about learning the Ducati because he said everyone can be fast on the Ducati for a couple of races, but uh, the only guys that can do it every single weekend are Banyaya and Martin, and that's what that's the kind of level that he has to get to. Um, I thought personally that Martin would maybe have a bit of a, a difficult time this year, living up to the hype of what he did last year, bigger expectations on his shoulders. Now, last year, there maybe weren't so many. It was more of a surprise that he was the, the kind of the championship forerunner. And then we saw him have a couple of crashes at the Valencia test last year, and I thought, I wonder if he's just maybe going to, you know, a few... Bit of pressure on his shoulders is, is really going to affect him, but um, yeah, everything that we saw from Martin uh, over these three days was was supremely impressive, just like it was from Banyaya. And you can always tell with Paco, just from the tone of his voice, like with a lot of riders, just how confident he is. And he was supremely confident on the final day um, of, of running. He said that basically the only small thing that uh, went against him was there was an issue with his bike when he was doing the sprint simulation on the final day. Um, yeah, he was, I think, maybe about three or four seconds off the fastest sprint simulation that we saw. And he said that that was due to, due to an issue on his bike. But otherwise, he was really, really pleased. He's not absolutely convinced about the new Ducati Aero. Like, he, he definitely thinks it probably has bigger potential than what was uh, what went before. But he's not like he absolutely loves it in the same way that Bastianini does. Or even Martin came around to, to kind of thinking on the final day. But... Um, but yeah, I mean, we're, we're probably going to talk about uh, KTM and Aprilia making big steps forward um, later in the show. They certainly have. But the thing is, it looks as though Ducati haven't stood still either. Um, and, you know, Banyaya, Martin, they've shown that they're the best guys on the Ducatis, maybe with the exception of Marquez now. Um, yeah, I think they showed once again that they're just going to take some beating because, uh, yeah, rhythm-wise and just the, the sheer number of laps that they racked up in the 1 minute 58s mm. when they were testing things was, was really impressive. Two things uh, coming to you first, Dave. Uh, why is Bagnaya, you know, given this impression that he's even more invincible? I mean, what have Ducati found? I mean, he had a lot of stability in braking. Braking is where he makes a lot of his gains around the racetrack. And, you know, they, they've made an augmentation to his package for this season uh, in the tests. I mean, it's got to the point where he was giving quotes on the final day that in Qatar, he only really needs to work on a few engine maps and he's ready to go. And also Jorge Martin, uh, the situation with Ducati, because there was a lot of talk in Valencia last year that he was sort of done with the factory. He was uh, not happy with the way he's been treated or the way he is treated currently. And there was there was some sort of dissatisfaction coming out of his camp. And then if you add on the slight kind of snub as well, that he wasn't testing with the rest of the Ducati riders in the in the outing at Portimao recently, uh, you know, there's a there's potential there for some sort of contract announcement because you have to imagine that Martin is going to be top of the list for most manufacturers and teams in the silly season. You know, if he leaves Pramac early on, does that derail a potential title bid? It seems like there's more turbulence around him than Bagnaya, who just seems even faster and even more invincible. Yeah, I mean, first of all, Bagnaia has completely cemented his uh, position in the factory Ducati seat, uh, uh, team. Secondly... Um, uh, winning the second, winning a uh, winning one MotoGP championship is difficult. Winning a second one, defending a title, is ten times as difficult because it's there's so much more pressure. Um, I think he's grown enormously in confidence. Ducati have given him more horsepower, 
Uh, the engine is a little bit better. They still need to work on that first touch of the throttle on um, uh, on making it just a little bit less uh, less aggressive. But that's the sort of thing that you can work out with electronics. Um, the bike probably suits his style a little bit more naturally because it's uh, it's better. The first thing that everyone uh, said when asked about you know so you, the engine's more powerful. How do you like it? There was oh yes, yeah, better in engine braking. Um, so. That sort of gives you. That's really playing to uh, Peko's strengths. I think he's just he's grown as a as a rider, as a person, as as a champion. Winning the second one has just given him even more confidence. He was walking around looking imperious, looking like okay, I've got this. And riding, he just looked just wonderful, sweet, beautiful, totally in control. Um, but so did Jorge Martin. And Jorge Martin, I think that turbulence around Jorge Martin, um, uh, Jorge Martin is a little bit like Cal Crutchlow in that Cal Crutchlow was rubbish in a factory team. He should never have been in a factory <laughs> team. He needed to be in a satellite team because he needed that underdog. Pro- pro. What, what Cal needed was to feel that it wasn't fair, that everyone was against him, that someone else had an advantage because then he would go out right show them, I'm going to show them exactly what I'm capable of and, uh, and, and, and I'm going to shove it down their throats and Jorge Martin has that same chippiness, that same um, anger and arrogance you know, he feels if he's not getting the respect he deserves, then he is twice as fast and he definitely feels like he isn't getting the the, uh, the anger the, the respect he deserves and that's making, him, that's making him faster, I think the worst thing that could happen to him is if he was in the factory Ducati team there's going to be a lot of interest in him, um, but he like there was a real, there was nothing said directly between Martin and Banyaya, but there was a real atmosphere about it because when you ever asked them Banyaya about you know sort of you know Jorge Martin and Airbus and anything, oh don't 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 care about them, not listen to them, only interested in, in in what I'm doing, and, and Jorge Martin was the same. There's a real sense of. The rivalry since last year has got even stronger, even more bitter, even more uh, tense. It's never going to spill over until into nastiness. But they, I mean, like if they could, the first person that those that those two riders want to be are each other first and foremost. The rest, you know, we'll see after that. But um, yeah, there's there's some real tension there. So I, you know, look, I'm really looking forward to things. It's going to be a great. I think it's going to be a great season, and I and I really think that it's, the the main two protagonists start right now after the Sepang test. The two favourites for the title are Jorge Martin and Paco Bernier. Yeah, and you talked about some of that turbulence, Dave, around our ad. You mentioned some of the turbulence around the Martin and where he might go in 2025. Um, you know, it would not be a surprise to see him jump to a factory, a Japanese factory team, for example. Um uh, Davide Tordozzi said over the weekend, or sorry, during the week that um, that Banyaya, they hope to have him signed up for 2025 and beyond before Qatar starts the first round of the season. So that kind of turbulence will will not really be present for the uh, the number one. Um, you imagine he'll be signed up and, and ready to go for for two more terms with Ducati after this season, before this season even starts. So Bagnaia is going to be better. Uh, Martin also, but then there's a little bit more of a bumpy road for Martin ahead. I'd say that's a pretty hot take uh, and kind of common sense, I guess you could say. Number three, Pedro Acosta finishes on the podium of a GP or a sprint in his first year. That's a no-brainer. I mean, literally, it's a no-brainer. Of course he is. Um, I mean, I, I, I would... I think it's tough to win, but I think he can actually. Um, uh, I, I I would not be surprised to see him win in in one of the races in his in his first year, a place like Jerez maybe. Um, Acosta is way ahead of where he was supposed to be. I spoke to um, uh, Paul Trevathan, and he said, you know, like when we were, he didn't really make a plan for a rookie because that's that's not the way that he works. He sort of like tries to react on. Uh, to see how far the, the you know the, the rider he's working is with, and then give him what he needs at that moment to make the next step. But yeah, you've got a list in in your head of all right, we've, you know, he's going to need to be able to do this and this and this and this. And he basically said, well, you know, the first five scraps, you know, they, the five steps, they were just straight out the window because he could already do it. Um, Acosta was everyone was impressed by Acosta. Um, like and he's not going to be able to win the championship. He's not going to be able to do what Mark Marcus did in two thousand and thirteen. 
in terms of winning the championship and in terms of you know regularly winning races because the field is so much deeper than it was in 2013. You know, there were four good bikes. Mark Marcus were getting onto one of them. Um, now there are I don't know, 12, 14 good bikes. I don't know. There's a lot of good bikes on the grid right now. And um, there's a lot of people you, you have to beat. But Acosta really showed the speed. He showed the pay. He showed... The most important thing is he did show the pace. I mean, Pekka Banyaya was fastest on one day of the 2019 test in his, um, in his rookie test. And I, I talked to Christian Gabarini about it uh, back then. Gabarini said, yeah, he's fast over one lap. That's the easy part. The hard part is being fast over the, over the race distance. But Costa's pace was really strong as well. You know, he was capable of putting together a long run. He, he did a sprint simulation, which was pretty impressive. So, yeah, uh, for me, he's 100% going to... Um, he's definitely going to he's, he's definitely going to be on the podium and I'd be surprised if he wasn't on the uh, if he doesn't win a race No, it's tempting to to get excited but you know I know in the Pira Mobility Group and Gas Gas they're already trying to temper some of the hype around Pedro but I mean if we look at it analytically then you know or if we analyse it with some sort of balance then he rode for six days at Sepang it's, I mean he was even talking about getting bored uh, as you would do I think um, you know the, the Red Bull Gas Gas Tech 3 team manager Nico Guillon commented that he had done more than 1500 kilometers around the circuit after the shakedown and you know the air to test so it, it makes sense that Acosta is going to be kind of up to speed but still the rate that he's done it and some of his comments are sort of exuberant youthful exciting um, kind of throwaway gloriously uh I don't know. How else can you describe it? He's the, he is a little bit like a breath of fresh air, which I think is the, the, the phrase that Dave used during the Patreon shows. Um, you know, I think he lowered his lap times almost like half a second every day. I mean, he said he made a three second gain across that way. So I, I think there is some sort of justification behind this, right? Because the adaptation is is real. He's making he's making it look easy. Yeah, yeah, I think you're you're right there, Ad. Um, obviously, it's in KTM's interests and in Acosta's interests to try and dampen these expectations that surrounded him. But I loved his kind of uh, his his answer to this the other day when he was asked, um, you know, how, how do you feel? Does this add pressure on your shoulders now that you have to turn up in Qatar and perform? And he said. Yeah, ever since I won my first race in Model 3, I've had pressure on my shoulders. So it's like pressure's only a word. I'm used to it. Um, and, you know, you have to say it's true. Uh, you know, since Acosta did that Herculean first uh, Grand Prix victory in, in Model 3 in 2021, you know, the kind of the media spotlight was on him, like, unlike, I think, any kind of teenager that we've really seen in, in, in Grand Prix racing, probably since Valentino Rossi, that kind of expectation from his home nation, from the media, looking at him and, and dissecting what's going on. Um, so it is something that he's used to. Um, and there were just so many things that were impressive. I mean, you mentioned a few of them, Ad, sort of Dave, you know, the fact that every day he was just getting a little bit faster and sometimes not even a little bit. Like, I think there were some days where he was going faster by about half a second to his previous time. Um, you listen to someone like Brad Binder, who was looking at his data and said, like, the way he breaks is just so impressive, so, so smooth, body position just right. Um and when you look at his uh, sprint simulation on the final day, um, I think he was, there were six other guys that were faster than him over 10 laps, but he was just, I think, three and a half seconds off Fabio de Gian Antonio's sprint simulation time, which was the fastest of the lot. So 3.5 seconds after, what, seven days of running on the bike is not so bad. And as he was at pains to point out to us, this was only his third ever trip to Malaysia to ride at Sepang because obviously we didn't race there in 2021. So um, I think all things considered, it's uh, it's pretty remarkable, this performance. Um, and just serves to, to kind of heighten the the hype and the excitement that uh, that is around him, that you know, this is probably the most exciting rookie to come into the class uh, since Marquez in 2013. And he has the kind of mental capacity, the intelligence to to deal with it, to take it in his stride and not be, not be overcome by it. So, yeah, really fun times ahead. And, yeah, I can see him getting on the, on the podium. I'm not sure about winning a race this year, but certainly you can imagine him getting on a podium at some track that he loves, Saxon Ring or somewhere where he's just always been really good at in the junior classes. So, yeah. Um, 
yeah, as I said, exciting times ahead. Dave, you have to have a degree of sympathy for Tectoire because, you know, on one hand, one of the narratives from 2023 was that you have to give riders time. The cases of Augusto Fernandez and also Digia, I mean, you know, if you don't give a rider time to adjust the MotoGP and show what they can really do, then you're really doing them no justice at all, as well as those maybe decades and years of of riding behind them to arrive to that point. I mean, you should be given more than nine months or one season to be able to prove that you've got the chops to, to cut it in the premier class. But now you have this sort of 19 year old talent coming in and showing, well, actually, you know, if you do have uh, generational talent and you do have the right mentality and you do have this um, magic elixir for success, then then it can work. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's right, Ad. Um, anyone can win a, a MotoGP championship if you just happen to have the talent of Mark Marquez. Um, that's, the point about this is that he is a generational talent. He is exceptional. Um, it's like talking to—I mean, like it's like talking to a thirty-seven-year-old, not a nineteen-year-old. He's so mature. He's so focused. He's so—he's um, also, you know, very light and witty and all the rest of it. But um, yeah, it is. Uh, yes. You have to give rookies um, uh, a chance to develop. You really saw that with Digia. You could see that with the with the development that, that Augusto Fernandez uh, uh, made over the over the course of last year. But there are some people who are just genuinely so much more talented than others. Um, uh, in, in programming, we used to call them ten X people who could write 10, 10 times as much code as anyone else. Um, oh God, you and lost everyone you now, Dave. Pick, we're trying to keep you, our you listeners listening, Div. <laughs> you, you couldn't pinpoint a reason why one person was so much better than the, than another. And this, and this is exactly the same. People like Mark Marcus, people like Valentino Rossi, um, uh, people like, it looks like, Pedro Acosta are so much better than the rest. They are so natural at riding um, that they don't need the time. They can perform. But you can't expect that of a normal rookie. So a hot take was just a slither of um, his, hysteric, hysterical kind of nature, I guess you could No, I mean, hysteria, no, all right. No, let me, let me put it this way. I think it's perfectly reasonable to be hysterical about this because <laughs> I'm completely hysterical about it and very excited. That doesn't mean it's not real. Flyracing.com has an enormous amount of clothing and protective gear, both for the street as well as off-road riding. The Formula S helmet is the most comfortable, best ventilated, one of the best looking, and certainly the smartest motocross lid on the market. Fly have moved the needle by making connectivity and advanced helmet technology the new benchmark. Have a look at flyracing.com to find out how and why before you make your next helmet purchase. Okay, our fourth take from the Sepang test. The Japanese are still screwed. Discuss. For you first, Dave, because you mentioned, um, you know, uh, Honda at the top of the show. Uh, it, I mean, it depends on how you look at it. If you look at it in isolation, both Yamaha and Honda have made massive step forward. I mean, like really big step forwards. They've really improved. The, the, the Yamaha now has a powerful engine. It is now fast. Top speeds are a little bit deceptive because um, the... Basically, the speed trap is just a fraction um, uh, into the braking zone. Um, and one of the reasons that Fabio Quattaro was so often so so far up there is because he brakes that much later than other people, so he's not scrubbing up as much speed. Um, but the Yamaha, he, he himself said the engine is much more powerful, there's much more speed. He said he felt like this is a bike that he can fight with. He still has a lot of work to do. The engine, the bike is still aggressive. It, they can't do a qualifying lap on it. The, the 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 bike just won't do a qualifying lap. It can't get the best out of a uh, out of a new tire. So it's still flawed. Uh, Honda, on the other hand, the new bike is so much better than the old bike. It's unbelievable. Takanakigama was interesting. He said the, the, the one thing, the biggest problem that the new Honda here, uh, has is that. Um, it isn't as good as, uh, or it still has the same problem of the old of the old bike, which was um, rear grip. Um, it, it's not worse, but it, it's about the same, or maybe a little bit better. But it's so much more better everywhere else. The trouble for the Japanese manufacturers is that Ducati have made another step. Aprilia have made another step. It looks like KTM have made a big step. Um, so, you know, like maybe Yamaha and Honda have made four or five steps forward. Uh, the trouble is that, yeah, that um, you know, Ducati have made two steps. KTM have made three steps. 
catching up is a lengthy process. They're not going to be competitive in 2024, but all of the riders seem to be quite optimistic, much more optimistic than they were at the end of last year. Maybe that'll have changed by the end of this year, but, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see. Jamal Mio is the last rider, I think, underneath the like, existing lap record. So that's, you know, positive signs of progress for him. Takanakagami, I think, was 13th fastest. Um, of course, Joan Zarco and Luca Marini, you have to almost give a pass because they're still in that transition phase from Italian to Japanese machinery. Um, Neil, what was kind of your thoughts just on the overall debriefs that we heard and, and what you saw in, in Malaysia? Yeah, they're still, you know, they're not going to be pulling up any trees, I don't think, in the first uh, couple of races, for sure. Um, but if you gauge their progress from where they were this time a year ago, then, you know, it's definitely a big step forward, um, you know, for the reasons that Dave mentioned. Um, and I think another thing that stood out was just that both factories finally seem to have realized that they really, really need to um, kind of turn around their working method and some of their, their strategies within the box. Um, and there were just some there was some evidence of, of the, the kind of the, the Japanese riders or the sorry, the, the Japanese factory riders explaining situations where there was a bit of a change. I think uh, Yamaha have obviously made uh, a big deal of Max Bartolini coming across as their new technical director from Ducati. I think he's the first ever European to hold that uh, uh, that title within the, the, the factory Yamaha box. Um, and some people at Ducati have told me that it was a massive shock that he left and is going to be a big, big loss because he just had such a massive, massive area. <coughs> Of expertise on on pretty much every area of the motorbike, um, and I think there was a moment during the first day where they were trying to part um, on the M1. It wasn't working. They were getting quite frustrated, and basically Bartolini said, "Right, there's got to be a way to do this." And he insisted on trying a couple of things that were maybe a little bit outside the box. And quarter hour said in the past, Yamaha engineers would have discarded the part and said, "Okay, that's no good." But this guy was like convinced that there must be some potential there, and was willing to do something that was maybe a little bit risky and maybe a little bit outside what they were used to doing. Um, so he was delighted about that. Um, and Alex Rins was obviously saying he's not in a great position to judge, but speaking to Fabio. Fabio has said there's a big, big step forward in how Yamaha are approaching things and how they're kind of organizing themselves. So that's definitely positive, and that will stand them in good stead. Then also said, or sorry, I think I read um, a, a tweet from our, our colleague, uh, Akira Nishimura, who was speaking to Taka Nakagami. Taka was saying how on certain days um, Honda engineers were sitting around with all four Honda riders together in one kind of meeting and they were all basically sharing information, discussing things. And that was the first time that he'd ever seen that. And that's a positive thing as well, because obviously Honda had been a bit of a closed shop when it came to the LCR squad, not always taking the comments of Alex Rins on board last year and, you know, his predecessors before him in LCR. Um, so there is this kind of evidence that they are basically starting to understand that it's not just mechanically they need to improve it. It's kind of their approach. And, you know, I think that's a positive thing for them. Yeah, just one note about um, Joan Zarco and um, Luca Marini. We talked earlier about Mark Marquez, obviously, uh, uh, and about that being the biggest step from Honda to Ducati, but it's an even bigger step the other way around as well, because at least the Ducati is a fast bike. You know, at least it's competitive. Um, uh, both Zarco, uh, Zarco has experience on the Honda, at least, so he understands how it is. But, you know, Marini is having to get used to the fact that, you know, like the front is fine. But the rear has no grip and, and trying to figure out how to manage. So a degree of hysteria then on that take. Uh, the Japanese firmly sort of on the route, you would say, to some progression and hopefully some more podium presence in 2024. Um, at this point, we want to play our interview with Massimo Marigali, uh, Monster Energy Yamaha MotoGP team director. Uh, one reason we put this in, um, because the audio is not fantastic, a little warning, is the quite wonderful backdrop of a typical Sepang storm. Um, you picked your timing quite well for that one, Dave. Uh, yeah, I mean, it was um, <laughs> it was actually the timing. The, the Yamaha were actually quite pleased with the timing because they just finished their presentation when all of a sudden, you know, the the rain absolutely fell down. So it was it was very loud, and there were some extremely loud bangs. And we were trying to figure out whether it was uh, whether that was lightning or uh, backfires from some of the bikes in pit lane. So uh, apologies for that. Or maybe a, a Japanese mechanic just getting frustrated and bashing the shit out of an RCV. You will have to, uh, you know, <laughs> who knows? But um, here's the interview anyway. Um, Mayo Marigali, you've already had two days of testing. 
um, which is which has got to be a big help because you have sort of a lot of work to do. How did first of all, how did the shake down test go, and how much do you think it helps? Yeah, you know, at the beginning when uh, I start uh, hearing about the concession, uh, as uh, uh, proudness, I was not happy, <laughs> but. Uh, I have to admit that anyway, this uh, concession will help us to speed up the development. And uh, we we did okay. Let's say three days uh, with Cal and two with the factory, the official riders, because uh, last year we brought a lot of material, but we could not probably test everything before the end of the year. And uh, here we already started to evaluate uh, items. Uh, the feedback has been uh, good, uh, mainly from the engine, uh, from the aerodynamics. We, uh, we bought also a new rear device that uh, need time to be, to be adjusted. And uh, we have other things to do. And uh, during the first two days, uh, basically, we had to stop because of the heavy rain in the afternoon. So luckily, we have these uh, three additional tests uh, from tomorrow. Um, are important. We are sure that uh, basically we have to take the most of them and not uh, only go in laps and kilometers but uh, evaluate uh, parts. So during the season, you know, it won't be easy to find uh, additional available days yeah. to do tests, but uh, already we plan some, uh, some tests uh, during the season to try to prepare the race, but also to evaluate new, new components. And uh, until we have this concession, we, we really need to yeah, exploit uh, them as much as we can. Yeah. Um, will you be planning your tests with, so that uh, Alex and Fabio will be with Cal, or will you be using Cal separately and, uh, and the riders? No, same. Uh, it can be in a few occasions that Carl will be alone, a few occasions uh, we will be all together, and uh, one occasion maybe only the official rider will be there in Europe and Carl uh, in Japan. Mm -hmm. You know, the limit is the quantity of the tires, but uh, already in these two days we saved some tires because of the rain, and uh, we will try to, to manage. Uh, after Le Mans we will go to Mugello, maintain the concession, after Austria we will go to Misano. Some, uh, some idea. After Portimao, the plan was to stay one day, but now Argentina has been cancelled. We are now considering to move to Jerez, and uh, we, we will uh, try to, to speed up, because uh, I am quite sure that uh, after uh, the, the next three IRTA tests, plus the two in Qatar, most likely we won't be able to put everything together, so more days we will have, uh, better we'll be. Because it, it, it's all very well having um, free testing, but with 22 races, I mean now 21, so there's a little bit, but 22 races, there's not a lot of time. At the beginning, when we start thinking about tests, we also uh, we were also concerned about the rider because uh, anyway we can't squeeze yeah. uh, them uh, too much. Even though when we spoke with them, uh, every time you mention uh, development, they always uh, say, yeah, yeah, we don't care, we 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 do, but. 22 races and uh, let's say some official test plus private test. Uh, for sure, this uh, coming season is going to be very tough. But uh, it, we are here to try to, to win, and uh, we will uh, do whatever we can to to be there again as soon as possible. The or the biggest weakness it seemed to me last year was uh, the Yamaha was acceleration. You seem to be losing a lot out of corners. There's a lot of reasons uh, for that. Uh, new ride eye device that has got to be aimed at helping that. What, it, what do you th do you think that you've solved or you, you've you've helped your biggest problem a little bit? Yeah, we already saw uh, that uh, we improve. Uh, we solve no, but uh, we we improve uh, this uh, this problem. But you know. To, to improve the acceleration is not a uh, matter only of one thing, uh, because uh, it's a correlation, aerodynamics, uh, electronics, uh, engine power. So you have to be able to really match all these things together. And 
Already, as I said, uh, in these two days, we gained something. Uh, it won't be enough, for sure, but uh, the direction has been uh, taken. Another additional uh, force is uh, Max Bartolini, because uh, he's bringing uh, a lot of experience, but also the way he does is uh, really motivating everybody. Yeah. In, uh, a part of knowing a lot of things, but as a person, uh, as a technician, it's really good to share the, the job and uh, motivating the people. And uh, this is, for me, something uh, that we were missing, for sure, and uh, also it's really nice to see. Yeah, exactly, because the personnel part is, uh, is important. Uh, finally, the times at the shakedown test were insanely fast, just so, so fast. Um, what has changed? Do you, do you have any? Have you looked at the data? Do you know why the tracks have been so fast? Yeah, for sure. Uh, okay, since the beginning, the track was fast, and uh, because already in day one, they were able to be quick, and uh, day two, the, after three laps, Fabio was faster than the, the race pace, yeah. and uh, he, he rode the bike last time, last year in Valencia. He never touched a road bike. And uh, yeah, it really impressed me. But uh, yeah, for sure the condition of the track uh, were uh, very good because uh, the first laps we did with last year bike. So it's not uh, because we improved the bike. We started as a reference bike uh, with the same bike we raced here last year. Okay, thank you. Well, good luck this year. Thank you. Well done, Dave, there for getting that interview with uh, the Yamaha team director. Okay, on to our last take from the Sapan test number five. KTM are more likely to push Ducati for the title than Aprilia. Who wants to have a first uh, opinion on this one? I guess I'll go on this one. Um, and I will say that, yeah, I think you're right with that uh, that assessment there. I, I do see um, both factories that were, were Ducati's closest challengers last year um, making steps forward. Um, Alessio Spagro, I thought, was quite impressive during the test. It was fifth fastest. I thought Brad Binder was quite impressive as well in uh, seventh, you know, two places ahead of Pedro Acosta. Um, <clears throat> but I think that, um, you know, it looks as though um, both factories were starting from a, a decent base. I think the, the 24 RSGP is not massively different from the 23, but the aero updates that they have brought are quite significantly different and have, have required the guys to to make some adjustments with their riding style. Um, and it also seems that KTM were, you know, starting from a decent base. They were actually pretty close to Ducati at the, the tail end of last year. Um, and therefore, it wasn't like they were having to make like some kind of revolution. So um, I think... Um, the fact that Binder was seventh at a track and at a, a test that normally isn't great for KTM. I think he's called the Sepang test horrendous um, in years gone by. Um, this was this was definitely far from horrendous. And listening to what Brad was saying on the final day, uh, he sounded like not like the bike is the absolute finished article, but they're very much in the, the ballpark. They made some changes, I think, on the final day. They've got a couple of different aero figurations to test, um, which they've kind of narrowed down, and they're happy with the kind of the, the new engine that they've got. And, yeah, it seems to be a, a fairly sorted package. So Brad was saying, compared to this time a year ago, KTM are, are really quite far ahead of, of where they were. Um, whereas with Aprilia, they've definitely made steps forward. Alex was saying that you know his lap time and his kind of lap by lap pace was was way faster. Um, you know his race simulation on the final day was very very strong, but you had to compare his kind of performance to that of Marek Vinales, who was twelfth, and Miguel Oliveira, who was done in eighteenth. And um, it, it seems as though the kind of uh, that both of those guys are, are less happy with with um, the 24 machine. They think it's got a lot of potential, but they still haven't managed to absolutely get their, their kind of combinations right. So, um, so yeah, I think both factories made a step forward, but KTM more so. And I think just the, 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 the fact of the matter is that KTM have the rider lineup that I think would instill a bit more confidence in you. 
Is it more confusing also, Dave, that there's such a mixed bag, you know, with KTM and Aprilia? I mean, you have riders excelling and looking in a good position, such as Alessio Spargaro and Brad Binder, but then other riders struggling, such as Augusto Fernandez, Maverick Vinales as well, also indicating in his final debrief in Sepang that there's still a lot of work to be done in the Qatar test. And from those two days at La Salle, you'd assume that they would have to be making final choices on the first and then looking towards the Grand Prix setup for the second. There's not a great deal of time left. And of course, you know, Miguel Oliveira having to sort of get his head around the 24 motorcycle, like Neil was alluding to, and then Raul Fernandez not um, present at the test at all. So it's, uh, you know, there, there are there are good signs and bad signs. It's not like there's a, a an emphatic step forward for either brand. Yeah, the, I mean, a lot of this is down to aerodynamics in the sense that uh, aerodynamics adds a complete, uh, another layer of setup. Um, but one of the things that um, one of the riders, I forget, so maybe um, uh, maybe Alasia Spargaro said um, early on uh, during the test was like in the old days, you would have, you know, you'd come somewhere, you'd have maybe two or three swing arms to test. You might have two frames to test and you could run through the various combinations quite quickly. Now, before you even get to testing swing arms and uh, and frames, you've first got to figure out all of the configurations of the of the aerodynamics, and you've got um, the front wings, and you've got the fork wings, and you've got the side pods, and then you've got the various lower fairings. You know, it might be ducks, whatever. Then you've got the various combinations on the rear. You've got the various tail wings. Uh, Massimo, or sorry, Romano Albasiano said, you know, we've probably got 20 different combinations of, uh, of various parts making up the aero package. And you've got to figure out which one which one works best. Um, literally, I mean, if you've got 20 different configurations, what you really want to do is do 20 runs in exactly the same conditions. But you can't do that because, you know, you, to get a decent run, you need like three or four laps maybe to complete, to, to, to properly understand it. Um, and then by the time you get to the 20th run on the, uh, uh, on the different configuration, you've forgotten what the first one felt like. And then once you finish that, you've got to move on to the next day. Uh, you know, the, the, you've got to do that with all the rest of it. You know, find a working setup and then start t- testing all the other parts. And the other parts will also start influencing how the aerodynamics work. So it just gets really, really complicated. I think um, Aprilia have made things more complicated for themselves with the with the uh, just massive amount of combinations. KTM seems to have simplified that process a little bit, and I think the base of the bike is better for KTM as well. That seems to be the the the, the thing for me. So I think KTM are in a better shape. Uh, Neil Davis mentioned coding and he's gone deep into aero. So my kind of mouse uh, pointer is hanging over the cutoff button, but we'll we'll give him as a <laughs> a little <laughs> suspension of, of his punishment just yet. But I mean, you talked about the rider lineup there and just sort of this last point on KTM. Do you reckon that could be the, the sort of difference? I mean, you know, you would probably put your eggs more on Brad Binder to, to challenge the Ducatis than you would say Maverick Vinales or Alessio Spargaro just because of a, a consistency thing. Yeah, I think that's fair. Um, big year for Binder, obviously, needs to step up, needs to prove that he can actually fight for the championship this year. Um, and uh, you could argue that in the past he didn't have the tools to do that. It does seem that uh, they're going to be closer again. Um, just how close remains to be seen. So, um, yeah, I would, I would, you would, I think most people would probably put Brad ahead of Alessia Spargro in terms of who's going to finish higher in the championship. Um, and then you have a, a certain hotshot rookie that could also come and influence things as well to a certain degree. So, um, yeah, I think things are looking very good for KTM. An opportune moment to remind you that 2024 is the 30th anniversary of the KTM Duke Naked Bike Range. There is currently an expansive media launch happening in southern Spain and where KTM have added the robust 1390 Super Duke R to the lineup. Fantastic and fun motorcycles, uh, very versatile and a blast to ride. And I can speak from personal experience. Head to KTM.com for more info. Um, We're coming to the end of the podcast, Dave. But first of all, there were a couple of other small news snippets coming out of Malaysia. Uh, Perhaps most notably, Daredi Burubio returning to the paddock as the team director of Trackhouse. Uh, That's quite a powerful name with a lot of contacts and a lot of experience uh, entering the newest team on the grid. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a long history at Yamaha and then taking Suzuki, uh, building Suzuki up from scratch and turning it into, you know, a a team capable of winning a world championship and winning races on an absolute shoestring budget. So, yeah, 
David Abrifio knows how to run uh, a team. They've split the roles. I mean, the roles were always split between team principal and, and team manager. Wilco Seelenberg will stay as team manager. He'll be running, you know, the day-to-day side of things. Um, where uh, Wilco, where uh, David Abrivia will be doing a sort of a broader range of, uh, of jobs. He'll be doing sort of a little bit more of the commercial aspects, a little bit more of sort of, you know, planning for the future, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I, it was a bit of a bombshell. Nobody really expected it. But uh, every, everyone, including everyone in, in, in the team, was really positive about it. It'd be interesting to see what kind of experience or insight he brings from the Formula One paddock as well. I mean, this is not the first time somebody's moved or transferred across the sports. But then you'd imagine that Rivio, after all of his years in MotoGP and then his uh, three-year term, I think, in uh, working with Al- Alpine F1, you know, what kind of uh, opinions is he going to bring to maybe change things a little bit for a team that are looking to shake things up anyway? Uh, Neil, uh, Franco Morbidelli didn't run any laps at all in Sepang, uh, suffering what would seem to be quite a heavy concussion after his crash at Portimao. The fact that Franco's not really going to get any testing time at all before we get to Qatar for the first Grand Prix, and it's not even really confirmed if he's going to be racing then. I mean, we're still like over a month, of, well, just under a month away from the first Grand Prix. So you assume he'll be in full health and ready to go. But uh, his chances of really sort of making any dent on the grid with the Decimus Adichie are going to be limited, aren't they, just because of his, his lack of time? Yeah, yeah. It's a massive blow for, for Franco to, to miss the two tests in Sepang and in Qatar. He, he did a lot of laps <clears throat> in uh, Valencia uh, back in November, but um, I think he was down in about 16th place. So it wasn't as if he jumped on the bike and was was really fast straight away. Um, we know how pressurized race weekends are. Um, the, the need to put in a fast lap uh, is pretty much there from Friday afternoon. Um, so getting up to speed slowly is, is not really an option during a race weekend. So yeah, it is going to set Franco back a couple of races, I would say. The good thing though, is that um, if it is a, it is, we haven't been told exactly why he's missing, but the fact that he was knocked out unconscious and had to kind of be put on his side by the Marquez brothers who are also riding at the same track day as him. Um, we can assume that you know he obviously has a bit of a concussion. The fact that he's missing these two tests is a it's a good sign that he's taking it seriously and he's taking the necessary precautions, which we don't always see in MotoGP. So, um, yeah, but I think this definitely sets him back a couple of races at least. Uh, and then lastly, Dave, it's, it's a bit of a difficult question for you, but you know we've seen the announcement in Formula One of Lewis Hamilton changing to Ferrari for twenty twenty five, even before a wheels turned for the cars. Uh, I know you've got zero interest in it, so I'm not going to go on any more about it. But it is, <laughs> it's not beyond, beyond the realms of possibility that we see a high-profile MotoGP rider confirm a contract or a switch quite early into this season. But then there's another factor as well, and that's satellite teams. You know, who could potentially change brand? I mean, there's already some talk going around about it. Uh, if you had to put your chip somewhere on a team maybe changing the, the manufacturer for 2025, who would you think is most likely to go? I mean, the biggest no-brainer is uh, for VR46 to become a Yamaha satellite squad. That was always the plan. Um, uh, There were factors which stopped it. Um, I think they would already be a a Yamaha satellite squad if it wasn't for uh, Razlan Rosali and the Petronas Yamaha team, who took over from uh, from Tech 3. But... um, uh, in the meantime, Yamaha's lost a lot of uh, competitiveness. So uh, do VR46 want to drop what is clearly the most competitive package on the grid um, uh, for to, to, to join the Yamaha family? I mean, you know, VR46 is a, is a Yamaha ambassador. Um, uh, they all have Yamaha. Uh, I think most of them have Yamaha bikes for the uh, at the ranch. Um, Yamaha used to, when... They only had a Moto Two team. Yamaha used to supply uh, bikes for the VR Forty Six Riders Academy uh, to be riding around um, uh, Misano to be training on. That changed obviously when where, uh, when everyone got to Moto GP and started riding Ducatis. Um, so yeah, that seems like a no brainer. However, there are certainly a, a number of uh, a number of factors. I can't. Tech Three are not going to leave uh, KTM. It's it's not going to happen because the the you know it, it's too close together. Pramac have always been the Ducati Junior team. Uh, yes, there's been sort of friction between uh, between uh, Pramac and between Ducati, um, uh, but you know Ducati use Pramac in such an incredibly strong way. 
Um, uh, Grassini are the te team with the loosest ties to everyone. Um, but, you know, at the moment, they're a bit in limbo anyway because they've got Mark Marcus, you know. Like, what's Mark, uh, Mark going to do? I think we don't know what Grassini will do until we know what, uh, what Mark is going to be doing for next year. Um, the thing is, all of these decisions have to be made by... Well, the summer break will already be a little bit too late. Really, these decisions need to be made by you know the end of June by Assen, preferably by uh, by the start of June by Mugello. Uh, and I'm not sure that anyone's going to be ready to start uh, uh, changing teams uh, uh, just then. I mean, we do know that uh, KTM have strong interest in LCR, but the way that uh, Honda are now, I mean, like last year. You could easily see LCR saying, you know, sod this, let's go and get some KTMs and, and get supported by KTMs. But um, the way that Honda have brought LCR in and are starting to use them as a satellite, as, as, a, a, as a junior squad, the, sort of the way that Ducati have always used Pramac, I think things might be, might be changing in that respect. Yeah, I mean, you'd have to say that Yamaha, particularly, not only have to show their staff and factory riders this year that they, they're full of intent. I mean, wrapping up Fabio Quattararo for the next couple of years is going to be a priority, but they also have to show the sport and the rest of the paddock that they're serious about developing the M1, um, especially if they want to entice a, um, a satellite team again for the future. So, you know, uh, window dressing perhaps was a big factor of the Zapang test. I don't think you can um, really understate how much... Yamaha's intentions have to be made clear to guarantee a bit more of a stronger future in MotoGP. On to our winners and losers from the Sepang test. I'm going to go first. Uh, my winner was uh, the world champion from reasons we've mentioned on this podcast. I think Pang Nai is just looking in fantastic form. Um, I'll also give a nod to Michelin because I think, you know, those lap times um, on a reduced tyre allocation, I think the riders were also trying the new front tyre for 25. And there seemed to be, I wouldn't say thumbs up, but certainly some cautious optimism for a better state of that particular tyre. So uh, um, we, Michelin does seem to get eternally bashed in MotoGP, so I'm going to give them um, a little bit of a, a few props anyway. And my loser, I just have to say Marco Bezzecchi. Um At the moment, he seems to be a little bit in a Jorge Martin 2022 funk in that he's not really gelling with the GP23 and the different engine characteristics. He said he's struggling both in corner entry and exit. And then in uh, Bezeki's typically droll, dry sense of humor way said, um, you know, on a motorcycle, you need to be able to enter and exit the corner. Uh, and, you know, it seems that he's going to be another one really fighting against the clock when we get to the Qatar test to get things sorted. So, uh, Neil, over to you. Uh, yeah, I think my winner, I think Ducati has to be, you know, the, the, the big winner because they just look as though they are still imperious in MotoGP and it's going to really take uh, something special to, to knock them off their perch. Um, but I think in particular, I'm going to have to go with, with uh, Marquez just because I think what what happened in Sepang was pretty much exactly what he could have hoped for, maybe the best that he could have hoped for. Um, and the fact that he came away on the final day not just uh, pretty fast over over a kind of uh, a set number of laps, but also had kind of tidied up his uh, his time attack pace. I think that bodes very well for his uh, his challenge this year. Um, and my loser, I mean, there's there's a couple. Obviously, Frankie for for missing the test. That's a that's a massive loss for him. I'm going to have to go with Augusto Fernandez though because uh, he just really cut a pretty despondent figure throughout the three days. A little bit of an improvement, I think, on the day. Uh, sorry, on Thursday, the final day, but. I mean, he was just uh, completely in the shade to uh, his younger teammate who has come in and taken all of the limelight off him. And uh, yeah, I don't know whether it's the pressure of Acosta that is that is in some way affecting Fernandez, but considering all the other three KTM guys were, were very positive about what the factory had brought um, to Sepang and what they were testing and what their bike is going to be like this year. Um, you know, Augusto was very much the odd man out being taking time to kind of adapt and, and trying to, to find his way. And I think, Dave, you said yesterday on the note show that you watched trackside for a couple of laps and uh, Augusto just looked miles off it in terms of his posture. He just looked really rigid and uh, stiff. Um, lost all, of, I think you put it to him in his debrief as well. He said he just lost all his confidence in the first two days. So, yeah, he's already um, facing an uphill task, I would say. Yeah, I mean, my winner um, has to be KTM um, because... If you remember last year, there was all of that um, to do about 
you know, how did KTM fit five riders into into four places? How did they find place for for Acosta? Are they making a mistake dropping Paul Espargaro for for Pedro Acosta? Um, you know, should he go into the factory team? All the all the rest of it. Um, and they've played a blinder. Now I will freely admit that. I'm not quite the driver of the um, Acosta hype train, but I'm certainly heavily involved in in making it go forward. Um, uh, but I had a you know a quick little chat to Paul uh, while while I was there, and he was much more relaxed. He was enjoying being the uh, being the test rider. He says, you know, just like he rem- now that he stopped, he's like, okay, no, the, the stress, the stress of those weekends were just terrible. Just really difficult because you've got you know you make one mistake early in the in the season and then you're always playing catch up and you've got no time to rest especially now with the sprint races. So yeah, I, I think um, um, it's quite clear that Acosta is the talent that we thought he was, uh, and um, it, the whole situation has worked out for the best except perhaps for um, Neil's pick, um, Augusto Fernandez, who all of a sudden there's a lot of pressure on him. So we'll have to um, see about that. The loser for me is the other Fernandez, uh, Raul, who got, how many laps was it, Neil? Something like 10 laps into the um, into the test before uh, deciding to see what uh, the uh, the air was like, was, was like up at, at 12,000 feet. Um Pushing too hard, too early. Um, he knows that the pressure is on him. He knows that there's going to be pressure on uh, on him. Uh, I, I spoke to someone um, uh, close to the team, and their view was that he, you know, he, he, it, it was good for him to have to have done that because he was just being stupid. He was pushing too hard when there was no need to. A test is. The test is three days. Uh, he's lost that. He's lost the test completely. Now he has to go back uh, there. He has to calm down. He has to change his attitude. Um, and this was the worst possible start to the 2023 season for Raul Fernandez. 2024. Oh, 2024. I don't know. Look, I'm We're old. in February, mate, all right? Oh, okay. You've had a month <laughs> of doing this, and I haven't said anything, but now I'm going to pick you up on it. <laughs> Uh, it was all fields round here when I uh, before you know it really was. No, I I, I, I can't keep <laughs> I can't keep pace with it. Anyway, I'm too excited about the fact that I've uh, I've got a new laptop and it's waiting for me at home, and I'm going to get to build it myself and be just horribly geeky. Dave uh, Ralph Fernandez is the hubris of youth. That's what it <laughs> yes. is. Guys, as you may have seen on a Patreon, we have a great competition of two paddock passes for a Grand Prix of your choice. For people who sign up to the $10 tier for the year, the offer comes with a 10% discount on the total fee and you get all that lovely content. Our paddock note shows from each day of a Grand Prix, plus the chance to win those passes with only a few hundred other subscribers in the running. We'll pick the winner across the Qatar GP and we'll announce the name of the lucky listener, excuse me, <coughs> through our respective channels. Uh, the Paddock Pass Podcast Fantasy League will also be starting up in a couple of weeks. Alpine Stars are sending our 2022 and 2023 winners some goodies. So a big thanks to Chris Hillard and the whole crew in Asolo. We'll be talking more detail soon on the 24 competition. So come and prove how useless we are when it comes to bench racing. Uh, guys, any 100% solid... Oh, speak, to you, speak for yourself, man, all right? Uh, speak for no, yourself. I, I speaking for Dave, actually, but, you know... <laughs> um, are there any? I'm taking it seriously this year. Well, listen. Are there any 100% solid picks for you so far, regardless of price? I mean, is there one guy that you have to have in the team? Because last year, I think none of us really would have put Martin in from the beginning, but he obviously probably garnered the most amount of points. Yeah, I mean, Peko, I think is is a just a an absolute shoe in at this moment. You would say it has to go in no matter what that means for your other picks, because yeah, he's Mister Dependable. Um, but yeah, so far, I mean, maybe a bit too early to, to say any other ones, though. Does that mean you're going to be champion Takanakagami for the rest of the season as well, Neil? <laughs> <laughs> yes, Pekka with uh, the two Fernandes is also in my team. Yeah, but uh, if, if you're looking for value, then I have to say, uh, like Fabio Di Antonio has been outstanding uh, uh, all, all this test, and he really seems to have turned the corner, and he's really, really happy with, uh, with his position within the team. So I suspect that he's going to be underpriced. Um, yeah, I mean, you know, Pekka Badia or Jorge Martin, you have to have one of those two, um, but they're going to be horrendously priced. And, uh, you know, you are going to be left with trying to 
you know, you'll be you'll be picking Michele Pirro just because you spent the rest of your money on um, uh, uh, on the rest of them. So yeah, it, it's uh, it's going to be a tricky one this this time. I think there are going to be there's going to be some value in there, but it will be trying to find it. Well, listen, Dave, uh, safe trip home. Good to speak to you guys. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week, and keep an eye on Patreon for some special interviews coming up.